Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the globe-spanning podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, politely joining the back of a queue in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, just complaining about everything in a queue in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We focus on cinema fantastique, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because we love sashaying around the house in leathery armour, spandex spacesuits and creepy featureless masks. (laughs) Dan, (laughs) how are you? Ah, I'm very good, very good. Uh, And you, Conrad? Yes, very well. Very excited for today's episode. Mm, Me too, me too. Anything in the mailbag? We do have a few little pieces in the mailbag. We had a comment on the NeverEnding Story video essay on YouTube from the Shaolin, who was talking about the differences between the international and German versions of the film, the cuts, and they were saying that the slower finale actually made them feel as though the ending could have been in doubt. Oh, okay. They said the scene in the German version feels more uncertain, like there's a pause between Bastion resolving the conflict. In the international version, even as a kid, I had a feeling Bastion would do the right thing, but in the German version, there was uncertainty, which made me even wonder if the movie would turn out the same. So that's Right. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, never would have imagined that. We also heard from Chad Rommel, our new superfan on Twitter, and he said of In the Mouth of Madness, Hey, what's not to love about a movie with a butt-naked old guy handcuffed to his wife's ankle? I used to pay extra for that. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Too much information for you, Chad. Um, And... We also heard from Cobra Commander Rules on Instagram, who is a New Hampshire native and recognised his state coming together when Sam Neill was assembling the map. So I asked him if he'd ever come across Hobbs End in his travels. And he said, nuts, they didn't pick a real town. I guess Franconia Notch isn't spooky enough. (laughs) They have a place called Franconia Notch. Amazing. Should have talked to Carpenter. (laughs) Should have done. Yes. So we should be very excited, Dan, because this is our one year anniversary. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. (laughs) We've been doing this for a year. And by way of celebration, I'm delighted to see the return of our first ever guest and now our first ever returning guest, writer, director and video essayist extraordinaire, Serge Bodnachuk of Cold Crash Pictures. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me back. I am stupidly excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) We're stupidly excited to have you here. How have you been? It's been great. It's been, um, I've, you know, I've been following your podcast since, uh, since I guest starred, uh, I've been producing a bunch of videos myself and, uh, I missed it. I missed, I missed talking to you guys about movies. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, we should have you back every time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we really appreciate all the comments that you give us as well. Uh, you're so reliable. <laughs> <laughs> so as well as being our first returning guest, you've also volunteered to be the first guest to ever venture into the oubliette yourself yes. to retrieve today's film. It's very brave. Well, I'm eager to see what it looks like down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been through the safety training. You have the eye protection and the high-vis vest, so yes. I guess we're ready to go. All right. All right. Should I go down? <laughs> yeah. By all means. Okay. All right. Be our guest. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I mean, I was expecting gruesome sights like the bloodstained walls and the rib cages hanging from the ceiling, but nobody ever said anything about how delicious it smells. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someone's got a stew going. Okay. okay. I'm coming back up. <laughs> Okay. Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> so what do you have for us? Uh, so today's film is the 1999 horror western by the name of Ravenous, mm. which is directed by Antonia Bird, written by Ted Griffin, starring Guy Pierce, Robert Carlyle, Jeffrey Jones, Jeremy Davies, David Arquette, and John Spencer in what would be his final film appearance. And uh, what's the... Uh synopsis for this movie so okay in 1847 disgraced u.s army captain john boyd is exiled to a remote military outpost deep within the sierra nevada mountains where a mysterious stranger by the name of colhoun emerges from the wilderness and says the rest of his party is trapped in a cave deep within the woods and that they've been resorting to murder and cannibalism to survive captain boyd and a small cohort of soldiers gear up and accompany colhoun to a cave where his companions are holed up, but when they arrive, they realize Colhoun might not have been entirely forthcoming with his true intentions. Ooh. <laughs> Sounds intriguing. Okay, let's take a break and then come back and discuss it. Let's do it. We're back to discuss Ravenous, the 1999 Western horror directed by Antonia Bird. Serge, you chose this film for us. <laughs> I wonder if you'd like to talk about why you picked it and the story behind it. Yes. So I grew up in a house where we weren't allowed to watch R-rated movies, mm -hmm. but I had an older brother. And so at some particular age, he was suddenly granted the right to watch R-rated movies. And one of them was Ravenous. And he would talk about it all the time, <laughs> which was kind of painful for me because I could not then watch it. And then, of course, once I became old enough to watch R-rated movies, for some reason, I never quite circled back and saw this one. Plenty of others, like Placid, Deep Blue Sea, other such greats of modern cinema. But uh, <laughs> when you graciously offered to let me pick the film for this episode, I thought this would be a perfect time to circle back and finally see it. Mm. And Dan, you'd never seen this one before, had you? I've never, ever heard of it. No? And, and I'm quite a big Guy Pearce fan as well. I, I love that guy. You've got to love Guy Pearce. He's from Neighbours. Every Australian's from Neighbours, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, I hadn't seen it either, so I guess that makes this our first triple blind special. Wow. <laughs> so where to start the discussion on this one? It opens with quite a set of um, post-movie quotes. Yes, it's an interesting tone to set right from the outset, isn't it? Because you have 
One quote, which is Frederick Nietzsche saying, he that fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And then that's quickly followed up by Eat Me Anonymous, <laughs> which is accompanied by the sound of an arrow thwocking into a tree <laughs> and a wolf howl. And then the opening titles have all these sort of swooshy skiing effects as they slide on screen and off screen. So I was thinking to myself, what have we yeah. set ourselves up for here? It feels like National Lampoon's Donner Party or something. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. I, I thought when I put the DVD in, did someone rip me off and just put the label on top of another <laughs> DVD? Was I, was I actually watching Cannibal the Musical? Um, yeah, like you said, Conrad, all these these kind of swishing sound effects for the title card made it look like a slapstick comedy. It was really tonally off. Mm. You know, for what it's worth, I was reading in uh, some trade publication an interview with the director which where she didn't go into too much detail, but she had mentioned a couple of things were taken out of her control in post-production. Right. And one of the things that she singled out was the opening quotes. Huh. So it sounds like a producer picked those, not the director or the writer. Yeah, that explains a lot because I think there was a very strong urge to turn this into some sort of wacky comedy. Yeah. It's well known that the film was started by another director, mm. um, Milcho Manchevsky, uh -huh. who apparently was quite the maverick and a very original artist, and so as a result did not fit into the studio system very successfully. So there were efforts to replace him with... Uh, I think his name is Raja Gosnell, yes. who did such great films as The Smurfs, Scooby-Doo, <laughs> Big Mama's House, Never Been Kissed, and Home Alone 3. Um, I would pay good money to see Ravenous directed by that. <laughs> yeah. He also did Beverly Hills Chihuahua. So this is a real <laughs> talent that we're talking about here. Not to be too dismissive, he, he works in a particular field and he's obviously been very successful in it. Mm. But it's a very different proposition for this particular material, which is a gritty wartime Western with cannibalism thrown into the mix. Yeah. In terms of not even getting into like tone, but just in terms of genre, I was hard pressed to think of any other true Westerns and true horrors combined together that I had seen. Uh, my first thought, I guess Guy Pierce was on my mind because the first thing I thought of was the proposition, mm. which isn't so much a horror as it is that's a Western with a lot of graphic violence in it. The only other true horror Western that I could think of was a film that I'd actually only seen in the last year called Bone Tomahawk. Oh, I've heard about yeah. that, yes. Yeah, it's got a great cast. It's got Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, mm. uh, Richard Jenkins. And anyway, they, they play these men living in this border station and uh, a tribe of quasi-Native Americans, quasi-surviving Neanderthals, mm. uh, steal a bunch of people, one of them including David Arquette. David Arquette is also in this film. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> haul them to a cave, and they have to go rescue them. And not to get histrionic, but it's probably just as a matter of course, the goriest film I have sat through. <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway, not to immediately derail our discussion of Ravenous by talking about this other film, but the point <laughs> I'm trying to make is that Ravenous really stands alone in terms of what it's attempting here. Mm. And that gave it points for me right off the bat. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. It's it's certainly original, though it reminded me of a lot of things, obviously The Thing being one of them. Mm. 
Another film that it reminded me of a great deal was A Midnight Clear, which is a World War II drama starring Ethan Hawke, Kevin Dillon, Peter Berg and Gary Sinise, which was directed by Keith Gordon and released in 1992. And it's about this group of men who are traumatised by war and sent to this ridiculous outpost in the right on the fringes of things in the snow. Mm. Yeah, it's a beautiful film and I recommend checking it out. Right. Yeah, there's a fine tradition of men in Iceland Isolated locations in the snow. <laughs> right. There is, um, uh, as I remember it, one named female character mm. in the film, but she's got like four lines. Mm. <laughs> she does survive, though. It That's has to be true. Said, which Antonia Bird was very pleased about. <laughs> the last shot almost is her walking away from the camp, sort of screw this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Not to talk about the very end of the film at the very beginning of the episode, but um, <laughs> it's the last shot of the film. Mm. I remember thinking the placement of that shot, it felt significant. It felt like there was something that the director or editor might have been trying to say about either the presence of this woman in the camp or the presence of this Native American in the camp or just the presence of someone who finally knew better. I don't know. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I think it's probably a little of all three. I think it's worth uh, sort of going back to talking about production in terms of the director being taken on quite late in pre-production stage. Mm. Like Antonia Bird was really just trying to sling together what had already been set up and I felt like the film did feel a little bit disjointed in terms of how it was put together. It certainly shows signs of being a production under strain. Antonia Bird really parachuted in at the last minute at the request of Robert Carlyle who'd worked with her before on BBC films in the UK so she came in with, a, I think, five days preparation. Oof. All of a sudden, she's in Slovakia in the snow <laughs> trying to piece this movie together. I think what they managed to achieve despite that is remarkably coherent given the situation that she found herself in. And it's great to see a woman directing a film that is what tend to be typically male-oriented genres of right. war, the Western and horror. Yeah, it was um, the producer, also a woman, Laura Ziskin. Right. Mm. It seems that the two primary authors of this film, besides, of course, the writer, is uh, they're both women. And all these things, it seems like such a rare confluence of all these factors just to get the film to exist that uh, I'm surprised it's not more popular. Yeah, you would think that it would have been held up as a fine example of women holding their own in <laughs> genres that they usually don't get the opportunity to do anything in, for sure. I mean, to say nothing of quality of the film itself just yet, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> yes, indeed. So let's give our listeners a historical setting. So this is set in the Mexican War which, as an English person, I knew nothing about. <laughs> I thought it was the Civil War, ah. which it isn't. It's 20 years earlier, and as far as I can tell, it's a very young United States looking at what was then a much bigger Mexico and wanting large chunks of it, like Texas, for itself. Is that... Is that accurate? You're, yeah, you're pretty close. It's, um, yeah, they, they decided they wanted Texas. Texas had declared itself independent from Mexico, and Mexico said, that's not true. You're still part of Mexico. Uh -huh. And so the American president, who I believe was Polk at the time, basically he sent troops to disputed territory explicitly to provoke a war with Mexico. Uh, Mexico was vastly underpowered. 
the United States Army marched to the capital, Mexico City, within like a year or two, and uh, it ended with Texas joining America. It also happens to be, you mentioned the Civil War. It's where a lot of Civil War generals cut their teeth for the first time in combat. Ah. So this is our setting, which is an interesting thematic point in and of itself, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Uh, so our main character, Boyd, goes through an experience in this where he ends up playing dead because he's in a battle that's not going very well. And he ends up being piled onto a cart with the corpses of his fallen comrades, with the blood of his commanding officer running down his throat. As a result of this circumstance, finds that he's able to squeeze himself out and then take over the camp that he's in from within and then is subsequently promoted or whatever. But I think his superiors know the circumstances because they have some harsh words with him and then send him off to the back end of nowhere (laughs) because they're kind of ashamed of him. So he sort of starts off the movie feeling ashamed, feeling as though he has been promoted for cowardice. I think that's his actual quote. Yeah. And he actually doesn't speak, I believe, a full line of dialogue for 25 minutes. So it's an interesting (laughs) performance. Yeah, now that you mention it, I'm I'm sure that's true, that he doesn't speak a a single line of dialogue for the first 25 minutes. But I I didn't notice until you just said so. (laughs) Yes. He's just such a presence whenever he's on camera. (laughs) I was trying to remember as I was watching the film where he was in his career at this point. And it was pretty early, I think. Mm. Uh, Before this, I think he'd done L.A. Confidential and... uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Those were the two things I had seen before this. Mm. Mm. Guy Pearce is uh, also, I don't know whether you guys know, a very good musician. Ah. And he's got an extensive (laughs) music (laughs) catalogue. I had no idea. Yeah, I've got a friend who's an actor and he was an extra in one of his music videos. So, (laughs) Really? Wow. That's that's how I know anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Marvellous. Well, he plays a very complicated character in this movie and he has quite an amazing arc. I mean, it's really the structure of the film fascinates me because it's three acts in which he has to compromise himself in order to survive. And what's interesting is the progression in how he feels about it. So in the first act, he plays dead and accidentally becomes a sort of cannibal vampire, and he's deeply ashamed of it and conflicted and traumatised and can barely speak. In Act 2, he does it in order to survive after confronting somebody who really is a cannibal. Mm. Spoilers, Robert Carlyle not a nice guy, Um, and does so in order to survive and crawl out of the hole that he's found himself in. And then in the third act, again, does it in order to defeat Robert Carlyle and set the world to rights. So it's kind of interesting, the structure of the movie, the way that it works. And again, thinking back to how the production circumstances of the movie, it's amazing that they managed to get something that's as well-balanced and coherent as that. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned structure. If I could just piggyback onto that. And again, big spoiler. I'm about to spoil the the last scene of the film. (laughs) Boyd, played by Guy Pearce, and Calhoun, played by Carlisle, are just like caught in a giant bear trap together. Yes. And the idea is if Guy Pearce dies first, Calhoun will eat him and go on to survive. (laughs) This is now the fourth time that Boyd gets to choose whether or not he's going to be a cannibal, and he finally decides not to. Mm. And then he dies... 
having not continued this evil, and then the movie ends. Yes. And it's beautifully balanced with the opening scene that kicked、mm. the whole thing off. So he starts off in a pile of bodies unwillingly and at the bottom of the pile and is traumatized by it. And in the end, his act of heroism is to purposefully pin himself on top of a body、mm. <laughs> and to die like that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> We describe this film at the very beginning as like a horror western.、Hmm. And then it's also been described as a dark comedy or a satire.、Hmm. There's a moment, there's like a shot in the film that I think it switches from a conventional horror to the satire.、Hmm. At the end of, say, the first act, Boyd and the group of soldiers have accompanied Calhoun to this cave to rescue his friends, ostensibly. But then, of course, once they arrive at the cave, we find out that Calhoun has simply lured them there because this is where he lures people to so that he can eat them and gain their powers. <laughs>、uh, and he massacres all but two members of the group. Boyd shoots him in the chest,、mm. in the shoulder, and Calhoun goes down and then he moans and then he sits up laughing hysterically. <laughs> and I remember the first time I saw this film, that happened. And it felt just like the rug getting pulled out from under me. I was like, that's it. This is stupid. This film is unfair. It tricked me. <laughs> I think it clearly changes genres. It was playing it completely straight up until that point. It was totally plugged into reality and history. And then, and then once you have this guy laughing off bullet wounds, it's, oh, this movie is about spirits and pure evil and superheroes and supervillains. Yeah. It's quite the tonal shift. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, we really have to talk about. Cannibalism.、Mm. <laughs> oh, for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in this film, eating human flesh makes you a superhero. And to、uh, escape death and heal all wounds and heal all gunshots and have no scar tissue or anything, let's talk about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's set up as a Native American myth. I don't think it's supposed to be a Native American power. It's just something that they have observed and documented, which is good because I would have been upset otherwise. <laughs> But it's certainly something that they're aware of. So you've got the two Native American characters, Martha and George, in the camp that Boyd is sent to. And they're kind of the figures, as you say, Martha is sort of in the background looking concerned for the whole movie until the end when she says, screw this and walks. But、uh, George is warning them. As well. And it's this whole idea that consuming your victims, you sort of ingest their soul, their life, power, whatever. It's sort of vampiric almost, the cannibalism in this movie. And we can talk about how we feel about the mechanics of that and also talk about what we think about it thematically, <laughs> because the film is quite clear what it's trying to say about it thematically, I think. So if I have a formal complaint about The moment when, oh, these are superheroes and supervillains, the moment when the audience realizes that, it's that much of what was generating tension before that moment was now nullified.、Mm. Before that moment happened, you're worried that people are going to die, horrible deaths. But then once you realize, oh, there are superheroes running around, it felt like we were dealing less with characters at that point and then more with ideas.、Yeah. Um, You're spot on. You can tell there is a moment in this film where Ted Griffin, the screenwriter, 
ran out of ideas. <laughs> and he says this in the commentary, that he was inspired by an episode in Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man, where Nick Charles tells the younger son of Clyde Wynette to read an account of Alfred Packer, who may or may not have killed and eaten his entire travelling companions while attempting to cross the Rockies. And Ted put the book down and wrote the first half of Ravenous right up to the cave, and then did not know where to go from there. Oh my gosh. And put it aside. And then the idea for what is ostensibly the second half of the film came to him later. And it does feel like two very different halves, yes. I think. Mm, yeah. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when you said, oh, I think the screenwriter ran out of ideas at that point, my first instinct was, oh, how could you presume that? And Oh, apparently he said so in the commentary. <laughs> oh, he said so. <laughs> yeah. Because it does feel like that. It feels like the first half of the film is missing its second half. And it feels like the second half of the film is missing its first half. Mm. And they joined them together as best they could. Yeah. Much as how the film was production was making the best of a bad situation these two halves of the film were being joined as best as possible as well yeah yeah i mean i i think the whole cannibalism giving you powers thing i felt like they went too far yeah first of all boy jumps off a cliff and tumbles for what seems like 10 minutes through <laughs> undergrowth uh breaks his leg his bone is poking out he pushes it back in he eats reich and then he is able to get out and, and walk back to the outpost because of the brute human strength he got from eating human flesh. And again, later on in the film, he's stabbed and he's presented the choice to eat Knox as a stew or to <laughs> die. And he eats the stew, the Knox stew, and, and survives. At that point, I just thought, what is going on here in this film? <laughs> I have this pet peeve with horror films whenever it's like, oh, if you eat human flesh, you'll become superhuman. Or another example would be like, oh, everybody who enters this house winds up dying, which is like the plot of uh, The Grudge. Right. Mm. I'm sitting there and I know I'm supposed to suspend my disbelief, but I'm just sitting there like, okay, if every single person who entered a house died... Somebody would bulldoze that house. <laughs> Similarly, if whenever someone ate human flesh, they became superhuman, we'd have heard about it by now. <laughs> anyway. There's actually an interesting uh, scene in this film where the Native American is, is explaining about the myth of, he calls it the Wendigo, uh, this mm. beast that eats humans and gets their strength and becomes more powerful, but just wants to keep eating and eating and eating. And then the colonel says, oh, does this still happen? And then the Native American points out, well, every Sunday you eat the body of Christ. <laughs> and then he whips out, a picture of Jesus as if prepared for the occasion. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to have your PowerPoint slides ready for these things. <laughs> yeah, the, the Christ imagery is not just limited to that scene, though. I think Robert Carlyle quite pointedly incorporated it as often as he could. I mean, certainly his appearance as Colonel Ives, when we find out that he is not Calhoun, he's Colonel Ives, and he turns up with his long flowing hair and his heavy beard. I mean, he does look very much like the Western imagery mm. of Christ that we tend to see. Right. And yes. he's toying with a crucifix quite often, which we find out was stolen from one of his victims, Mrs. McCready. McCready being 
the name of Kurt Russell's character in The Thing. I'm not sure if that's incidental. Oh, I didn't even notice. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe incidental. Yeah, so he's toying with a crucifix throughout and in quite pointed ways. And sometimes he said that he would make sure that it was dangling from his hand and moving back and forth so that you would catch it would be the only thing moving in the shot. Mm. In the final confrontation of the film, Calhoun is literally running around with a bloody cross on his forehead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's that scene where they lift him into a bath and and, mm. and wash him and something pieta about it mm. yeah exactly so he's trying to incorporate that from my perspective i'm not quite sure what to make of that i mean i get where they're going with ives big speech it's clearly the crux of the movie he's trying to convince Boyd to come aboard that they can turn this camp into a camp of cannibals that just selectively prey on all the settlers that are passing through. And he said, we just need a home and this country is seeking to be whole, stretching out its arms and consuming all it can. So it's very much positioning Western expansionism as an act of immoral, self-defiling consumption at the expense of others. And... That seems to be sort of the metaphor that the film is working with. I'm not quite sure where to put Christ in that, but <laughs> maybe I'm missing something. He also mentions Manifest Destiny. Right. Here's my question now. Do you learn about Manifest Destiny in England and New Zealand and or Australia? No. No. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I don't Please know what that is. Please <laughs> explain a Manifest Destiny to us. So Manifest Destiny is actually one of the few negative it's an unambiguously negative aspect of american history Mm -hmm. that actually gets taught in history classes here in america wow (laughs) basically the idea is that manifest destiny was the concept that america not just that they would inevitably conquer all the lands that they could reach out to but that it was owed to them. Mm. And their sort of hand wavy way of justifying it was oh we'll just convert everybody that we steamroll and then God will be okay with it. Mm. I thought that maybe it was using Manifest Destiny as a way to talk about perhaps the effects of privilege of living in a country, maybe even specifically America, as a privileged class. And even if you're not actively participating, you're still benefiting, you're still complicit in all of these horrors that other people have done in your name. Mm. But then, so I'm thinking about all these things. Oh, it's about Western expansion and American false exceptionalism. And then I read an interview with Antonia Bird, and she was like, oh, it's about L.A. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which is really confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, she just talks about L.A.'s obsession with eternal youth and everything you put in your body and hacking bits of your body off to make yourself look more attractive. And she found it quite amusing that all the settlers that Robert Carlyle is talking about in that scene would pass through that particular area and settle the plane that would become Los Angeles, which she thought was hilarious. <laughs> so that's what she thought the movie was about, which is interesting because I didn't get that at all. Uh, no. You know, I, it's the kind of thing that I wouldn't have gone there, but I appreciate the interpretation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. 
If you have a taste for trivia and you're ravenous for some tidbits from ravenous, Dan, what have you got for us? Well, I just had a small bit of trivia. So apparently uh, Guy Pearce is a, a vegetarian. So uh, oh. probably not the, <laughs> the best pick for, for him. But uh, the scenes where he's had to eat the stew, apparently that was a very delicious lamb stew. And he would put it in his mouth and pretend to eat and every time Antonia would shout cut, he would just spit it out <laughs> immediately. Oh. So, yeah, I can imagine those scenes would have been quite gruelling for him. Yeah, and there's lots of bloody meat that he's chewing on in various scenes as well. It's yeah. kind of been pleasant for him. <laughs> Serge, do you have anything interesting about this film? Yeah, so coming to the story, I thought, oh, it's based on the Donner Party. But apparently not mm. so much. It's actually based on another cannibal by the name of Alfred Packer, who was this man, as I understand the story, in the 1870s presented himself as this expert wilderness survival guide to this group of men, uh, even though he knew absolutely nothing about surviving in the wilderness. And he (laughs) took them up a mountain, and then he emerged all alone two months later. And it kind of follows at least the first act of this film kind of closely. He comes across this like outpost and people realize his story is bizarre, but they're going to go into the woods to try and track down his companions because he said that they had abandoned him. Mm. And they were like, well, why would they abandon their guide? (laughs) So, but they go into the woods and they can't find his companions, but then he tries to murder the leader of the expedition. (laughs) And so they're like, okay, well now you're under arrest. (laughs) Apparently after the snows melted, they found the bodies of his five companions, which the forensic evidence didn't match up at all with the story that he had told. He had said that they had all died one by one, most of them from starvation, but when they found the bodies, they were all in one clump and they were sporting defensive wounds, like they were fending off hatchet attacks. Nobody's sure exactly what happened because Packer kept changing his story, but basically he very likely killed them all probably to rob them, not to cannibalize them, but then he he got snowed in. And then knowing nothing about wilderness survival, he then ate them to survive. Once he was in town, he was like spending stacks of cash. He was carrying around multiple wallets, just immediately incriminating himself. (laughs) So I thought it was interesting that a screenwriter gets wind of this story and he decides he's going to adapt it but he's going to write a criminal mastermind wherein in real life he was just an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Like Richard Pryor in Superman 3. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our trivia. Should we talk about tone of the film? Uh, So this is one thing that I just couldn't wrap my head around. Mm. As we've mentioned, the film starts off very kind of slapstick and uh, Conrad, you you see the National Lampoons (laughs) hit the nail on the head. And just a lot of sort of scenes that were just way more comedic than I expected them to be. I, I know it's been said that this film is supposed to be satire and it is dark comedy, but I don't know whether some of those scenes worked. Like when the colonel was introducing the men of the outpost and, he, and he's, <laughs> he's introducing like like the cliques of a high school, like we've, we'll talk about in disturbing behavior. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you have these shots of these 
characters. You've got Private Reich, uh, and he's talking about him and, and don't go near him. And he's just standing in the middle of a river, <laughs> topless, just screaming. Yeah. <laughs> like you do. And I just thought, what what... Is, am I watching a comedy right now? I, I was so confused. <laughs> I'm so pleased you made the disturbing behaviour crossover because I noted that down as well. So soon after watching that movie, I was expecting an albino to just come in and give a, a, a quick rhyming couplet quip <laughs> at the end of every introduction. Yeah, it's tonally an odd film. I mean, one thing that I couldn't get used to in The Outside is the first scene the sound just seemed to be so badly mixed, like everything was dry and front and centre, the sounds of the eating. It's like a banquet and all these military guys are eating what appears to be raw meat and Guy Pearce is having an anxiety attack over it and you can hear his breathing as though it's... So loud. Yeah, it's all too loud. And I thought, this is just complete ineptitude. I'm watching a really low-budget, terribly mixed movie. And then it's only when he gets to the camp when everything sort of opens out and the music gets better the editing gets better the sound gets better Hmm. but i actually on reflection think it's deliberate yeah i thought it was too yeah it's an experiential thing it's placing you directly inside guy pierce's character's experience and that's the way the world looks to him at that moment it's very similar to what my favorite movie i always mention it ordinary people the robert redford movie Hmm. where the movie begins and it's incredibly disjointed the way that it's edited and it really alienates you as a viewer and it's only as the main character starts to feel mentally more well that the film starts to even out a little bit. So structurally, perhaps more intentionally interesting than I was expecting when I first started watching it. But yeah, the tone still sort of veers all over the place. Like this, you've got the scene in the cave where there's all of these discoveries and the music is really tense. There's there's one sound on the soundtrack that I fucking hate, but I'll talk about it. <laughs> the kazoo. Yeah, what the hell is that? <laughs> Why is there a kazoo in that scene? But yeah, there's... There's a really tense stretch of that scene and then it comes to a dead stop. Two people are dead and you've got Jeremy Davis's character, Toffler, gets chased through the woods by Robert Carlyle and all of a sudden you're listening to a hoedown and it's a jolly jape. (laughs) (laughs) But I think... I do think the film just manages to sort of skate this thin line deftly most of the time. I was sort of along the ride. I was never thrown off anyway. Yeah, this might be as good a time as any to talk about the score, Mm. which I think is fascinating. Mm. Whatever you want to say about the score, they sure as hell shot their shot. (laughs) So I'm not insanely musically inclined. I don't have any training. I don't play any instruments. But with all of that said, I've never found myself paying attention to a score so much. Mm. There were two composers who made the soundtrack for this film. Michael Nyman did about 40% of the tracks, mm-hmm. who I knew his work from Gattaca, right, yeah. which is one of my favorite film scores. And then the other 60% of the tracks were composed by Damon Albarn, mm. who I had no clue who that was until I looked him up. He is actually the co-founder and lead vocalist of Gorillaz. Mm. Yes, and, and most famous in this country originally for being a member of Blur, mm. which was one of two warring bands in the 90s. In the 90s, the charts were all about... Britpop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was Oasis and Blur, and you, you had to put your hand up and say which one you were supporting. It was very divisive. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> Um, he's also in another band called The Good, The Bad and The Queen, mm. which is another really incredible band. So for me, 
musically, he's like pretty up there. I have、hmm. all of those bands' albums. So I was writing down my favorite tracks, and just for reference, for everybody who wants to go look them up, they included Boyd's Journey. Colhoun's story and my personal favorite, "Let's Go Kill That Bastard." Whoa! <laughs> and I thought I was noticing each of these tracks was doing this thing where there was a traditionally suspenseful track, and then it was overlaid with something that I called in my notes Western whimsy,、mm. uh, w- which is like perfect banjos and harmonicas. Yeah, <laughs> they're playing over each other, and they're both doing their own things and setting up their own tones. And I think when you combine them, you got something that I—I I don't know—I haven't been able to stop listening to it. Me too. <laughs> yeah, they're even playing different time signatures sometimes. It's quite fascinating the way this music works. You would have thought that Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn would not necessarily be obvious bedfellows for co-composing a score together.、Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how this pairing came together. Damon Albarn had certainly worked with Antonia Bird before, but he appeared as an actor、oh. in her previous film Face, 1997, which was a crime drama in which Robert Carlyle also appeared. Um, but n- he'd never done a score before, and I don't think he's done many since. Maybe a couple of short movies, and he was kind of learning as he went along. He has a commentary track on the DVD, which is very interesting to listen to, and he's a very honest artist. But he really went into great detail researching this. He was listening to some of the earliest recordings of American music in the Smithsonian collection and <laughs> hiring folk artists to recreate them. And he was trying to create these repeating loops to give the story a sense of. Inevitability—that it was always going to end up a certain way, that they couldn't escape these patterns of behavior—and of course, Michael Nyman himself is the king of loops. In fact, he drives me crazy sometimes, just sort of repeating the same four-chord pattern over and over again. <laughs> But the two styles mesh amazingly well, and I don't think they compose tracks. Together, they just compose completely separate tracks. Right, I'd read that. Yeah, it's, it's,、oh, right. and early on, sometimes I feel as though the music is acting against the movie. Like when Colhoun is telling his story about the ill fate of his、uh, traveling companions, the music is too busy, it's too loud,、mm. and they've had to dial it down a huge amount on the soundtrack until it's almost not there. And on the commentary, Damon Albarn says, "Yeah, I really learned a lot during this scene. The music is doing too much." Much、hmm. and as the film progresses, the music still has this delicious tension with the movie, but it's more productive, I think, than、mm. it is in that scene where it just has to be dialed out completely. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the loops because it felt very repetitive.、Mm. So Damon did do a lot of research. He listened to a lot of Appalachian music. I think he used the dulcimer in a lot of the tracks as well, which is a Appalachian. The stringed instrument,、mm. so I, I felt like theoretically he was doing the right thing, but I don't know whether sonically it worked. And Conrad, you mentioned like a lot of the music was quite busy, and I did find most of the scenes I just didn't want the music there. It was just a little distracting, and there are certain scenes where it was mixed so low. Mm. Why have it in there at all? Just, just <laughs> take it out. Why do you need to have music that quiet that you can barely hear it? Yeah, it feels like a bit of a self-defeating compromise in that scene specifically, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I felt 
like totally it really derailed scenes like that hoedown you mentioned it was just <laughs> what it was supposed to be a very tense action-packed suspenseful scene and then you've got this jolly romp through the forest <laughs> and it's, it's not what i wanted to hear and that i guess i'll just call like appalachian elevator music that starts up sometimes <laughs> at the end of the film and i think at the start of the film it's just what, what what is this? And I don't think it's as bad as Lady Hawk bad in oh terms of completely wrong tone. <laughs> That's a, another level. But there were certain moments in the film that I just thought, why? <laughs> why is the music playing right now? I never found it that distracting. And I've been listening to the music a lot since and been working on <laughs> the the bumpers for this podcast uh-huh. sure. because they're kind of earwormy. <laughs> <laughs> I think on their own, I think they're great pieces of music, but I just, I don't know whether they work in the film for me. Okay. You had mentioned that uh, they played this one track at the very beginning of the film, and one track at the very end of the film, that track's called Boy's Journey. Uh-huh. Uh, because it opens the film with him going to the outpost and then it closes out the film with him, spoiler alert, dying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a third time that they play it. It's after he's been confronted by Colhoun at the cave and he broke his leg and he ate Reich's corpse in order to heal himself and he's marching back to the outpost. Ah. And I don't know, all three times he's in transit. Yes. With the third occasion being his soul exiting his body. But... um. <laughs> I don't know. I thought, and it could be just as simple as playing it at the beginning of the movie, the middle, and then the end. But I thought that they were attempting some sort of recurring theme, leitmotif, I don't know, something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Even when this movie got at its most, what's the word they use in film school? Batshit. There was always such intention behind it that I kept going, all right, I'm not with you yet, but... I'll follow along. Mm. I took that same approach with the music. Mm. I mean, I think there are two scenes where the music works really, really, really well. And they are kind of my two favorite scenes of the film. So the first one is the standoff. So this is after Cajon has killed all the guys and it's just Boyd and Cajon on the edge of the cliff and the music is really perfect there. I love it. Mm. And and then mm. Boyd... That's my favorite too. Boyd decides to jump off the cliff and I was shocked. Like that, that was a very effective scene. Mm-hmm. And the second is the end scene with, again, the standoff between Boyd and Cajon. This is one part of the movie where the repetitiveness of the music was effective, Mm. in my opinion. It really did build tension and it felt like something was going somewhere. The other parts of the film, I felt like the music started and then it just kind of faded away. Mm. It, It just didn't seem to go anywhere, didn't seem to fit the vibe of or, or the mood of the scene and it wasn't so much a film score as more like conrad you've put it before like a needle drop like they just mm. needle drop music into scenes perhaps it should be stated then that um all the things you're describing needle dropping music into scenes fading it in and fading it out is precisely what i did to score my independent film oh. <laughs> oh. sorry <laughs> No, only because um, we didn't have a composer. I had Um, to uh, license music and then sort of fit it in where I could. But I'm just saying maybe that's why I have more sympathy for the soundtrack. uh, (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. 
So I know you all have been gnashing your teeth with anticipation for the <laughs> Moobly Awards. Uh, this is where we nominate a bunch of our favourite things in a number of completely useless categories. Serge, we have a guest. Uh, we always start off a favourite quote. What was yours? Okay, so it's the moment in the film when Colhoun drops the act and reveals himself to be a crazy serial killer and he slaughters two people in quick succession and he's got poor Toffler in his sights. <laughs> he is run out of bullets and so he pulls out a knife from the corpse of his previous victim. Toffler's just standing there horrified and Colhoun looks at him and goes, run. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to highlight that line because it's three letters on the page, but I really feel like Robert Carlyle did so much with it. Oh, yeah. It did. Yeah, and run is usually so wasted in movies. It's usually yeah. repeated three times in any action scene. Run, run, run! Yeah. Ah, yes. Conrad, what was yours? So mine was probably the big speech that Ives or Calhoun gives in front of the American flag about expansionism. <laughs> As a second choice, I will go for Colonel Hart's immortal line, it's lonely being a cannibal, tough making friends. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Okay, our next category is hair and costume. Do we have a favourite piece of either hair or costuming in this period piece? Serge, what would you go for? So I wanted to highlight just how appropriately filthy all of the uniforms and costumes were. Mm. In my first viewing, I'm watching it. I'm like, wow, they're, they're just covered in mud. <laughs> it was just something that I noticed in passing. But then I was reading that apparently the producer, Laura Ziskin, she was viewing the rushes. And she apparently sent notes to the director saying, hey, the, the uniforms are too filthy. <laughs> I actually quite like the level of dirt that imbued every single character and every single prop. Yes. Yeah, apparently on the commentary track, Jeffrey Jones says that the costume designer produced these beautiful period accurate costumes and then had to go and just stamp on them in the mud for, <laughs> and tear them to shreds and it must have been heartbreaking but it does lend a lot of credibility to the film i think mm, yeah i mean my my favorite costume robert carlyle just looked incredible all the time but I really loved when when they were going on the expedition to the cave. So he's got this big kind of grizzly beard. He's got like long greasy hair. He's wearing like a, a, a leather loose fitting poncho. But then he's wearing like a bowler hat, a black bowler hat. And then he's wearing like what looks like aviation steampunk goggles. Uh, and I just thought, where did this guy come from? <laughs> but then, I mean, they are they are trekking through the snow and everyone else is wearing the goggles. Totally legitimate. But yeah, I thought, wow, did he just drop in from a, a, the, the, the latest steampunk sci-fi? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, apparently without them, he couldn't see right. at all. <laughs> all right. Uh, next category. Uh, this is a a 90s film any 90s moments for you guys um, my most 90s thing in this movie is David Arquette oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he sort of stands apart he's just in the movie in the background 
And he's David Arquette. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like Deputy Dewey from Scream 1 and 2 <laughs> from 96 and 97, just doing snow angels and making weird sculptures and giggling. Yeah, getting high, yeah. Mugging at the camera, <laughs> and then he's gone. <laughs> Uh, how about you guys? So for me, uh, I don't know if the Wendigo myth is widely known in uh, England and Oz. No. So they they mentioned it in the film. And earlier in the episode, you guys had mentioned Wendigo. And it, it seemed like an unfamiliar term. But I feel like it crops up all the time in American film and television. Anytime they need a Native American monster... They go to Wendigo. It's every single supernatural show has featured an episode on it. It pops up in all these different films about people encountering monsters in the woods. And the thing that kind of bothers me about that, it most of the recitation of the Wendigo myth appears to be at least generally what the actual myth was. It, it related to cannibalism and, and gaining strength, but also greed and avarice. It's, uh, it's an Algonquin myth that originates from the Great Lakes area and southeastern Canada, not the American West. Mm. Ah. Right. Anyway, so it's just, uh, I guess, the Wendigo myth in general. It seemed like it was popping up all the time in theaters and <laughs> in TV screens in the 90s. Ah. Okay, how about a favorite scene? Serge, did you have a favorite scene in this movie? So, yeah, it's, uh, it's when Colhoun snaps the cave. I know that hasn't quite been so popular amongst the three of us, but it's not even necessarily my favorite scene. But the thing that I like so much about it is that there's so little on the page mm. and not much is going on in terms of the story. But I feel like the score and the performances and the editing and the camera work, what they decide to push in on, what they decide to keep a little bit of distance from, it's all pulling triple duty to sell that scene. Mm. And they had the toughest hill to climb, and I think they did an impressive job doing it. Yeah, it is a fantastic scene, which is why I think the banjo <laughs> that, that crops yeah. up <laughs> in the very next scene is such a sharp contrast. Yeah, Dan, how about you? Uh, I mean, I mentioned it before. I, I love the two standoff scenes, but uh, the end one, I guess, was really great for me. Like, I, I love the use of sort of point of view from Boyd. So you really didn't know where Calhoun was and it had just a lot of tension and really good use of music for once uh, and a very, <laughs> very effective scene. I, I'm not sure about the actual fighting part, where they just end up just using all these conveniently placed gardening and kitchen utensils to stab each other. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was relentless. It was just stab, 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 bear trap, the end. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I felt like that didn't have as much tension, but leading up to it, it was really great. Mm. Conrad, how about you? Uh, for me, I, I'd love the long dark night of the soul that Boyd has in the pit. Mm. It's probably the sequence, Sergio, we're talking about how it melds the, the pivot point between these two different movies. Yeah. And I think that is sort of this sort of bizarre dream sequence where it sort of allows the tone to shift into this slightly more fantastical movie. Mm. The score is gorgeous. There's a fantastic cue in that scene. It's all orchestral. It's all Damon Albarn. Huh. And it's sort of harp and strings and it's mysterious and the soundtrack and there's, there's wolves howling and Boyd's staring at this ghoulish rictus on Reich's face with dead blue eyes staring at him, daring him to eat him almost. <laughs> and, yeah, 
I really like that scene. I thought it was uh, it, it did its job in terms of shifting you from one part of the movie to the other. Mm. <laughs> Next category, uh, most cliche, I guess, horror moment. Serge. So Colhoun has just snapped, and he's offed uh, two characters, and Toffler's the only one left who's just standing there petrified, and he raises his pistol, points it at Toffler, pulls the trigger. Toffler flinches, winces, shuts his eyes, mm. but then click, click, the revolver's out of bullets. But mm. then <laughs> the next line, it's almost as if the film knows how much of a cliche that is because he literally drops the gun and says, that's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> At least he doesn't throw the gun at him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of my pet peeves. <laughs> uh, Dan, how about you? Um, I mean, I didn't find that many cliches in this film, um, but there was one, I guess, when they were investigating the caves, and suddenly there's just this loud bat. But you don't <laughs> see the bat. So it's not completely a horror cliche because they don't open the door and a bat flies at them and it's just a big loud sound. <laughs> so it's not the same jump scare effect as something coming at the screen. And for you, Conrad, what was your cliche moment? Um, it's another fake scare. It's the, the wonderful scene where poor David Arquette falls victim to Boyd's cannibalistic daydream uh-huh. <laughs> and is clobbered over the head and pulled apart and then starts giggling with glee as only David Arquette can at being eaten alive. Live on film. <laughs> but yeah, that whole thing of having somebody live out a fantasy, but you don't realize it's a fantasy and, until you cut back and David's fine and he even mugs at the camera and chuckles to prove it. So Yeah. Uh, next category, favorite special effect. So I noticed that, uh, of course, there's a lot of gore effects in this film, but mm. what I liked about them was that whenever somebody suffered a wound, they tended to keep bleeding, which I don't think a lot of horror films commit to. Um. Like Boyd gets stabbed in the gut with a knife, and then there's a shot of him at dinner with the blood seeping through his shirt hours later. Colonel Hart gets his throat cut, and there's this fountain of blood coming out of his neck. I don't know. My favorite effect was that the wounds kept bleeding. Mm. Mm. So much so that they ran out of fake blood, apparently. Uh, right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the great 1999 fake blood shortages of Slovakia. <laughs> yeah. So, Dan, did you have one? I mean, I didn't have a, a special effect. I love one of the stunts they did. So it's the eternal, endless tumbling down the hill of Boyd when he jumps off the cliff. Mm-hmm. Like, I was so impressed how long that stunt went for. Yeah, it's it's an amazing shot, actually, the leap into into thin air over that cliff edge. Yeah. yeah. And Antonia Bird fought to film it first unit because usually that kind of stunt is second unit, oh, but she fought okay. to film it herself hmm. to make sure that she could get that shot the, exactly the way that she wanted it for the rest of the sequence. Yeah. And uh, having seen it, I don't blame her. Yeah, it looks amazing. How about sound effect? Was there a sound effect that you particularly liked in this film, Serge? Uh, yes. So Boyd is in the pit and he's got a compound fracture of his tibia. The bone is poking through his leg and he has to push it back in. And we get this sound effect, which it sounds like crunching graham crackers as he's pushing it in. <laughs> And that was great, I thought. But then they match cut. Right when he gives it the final push, they match cut to a a piece of wood getting chopped. 
getting cleaved, if you will, by the character Cleaves. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty on the nose. That sound effect paired with that match cut was my favorite in the film. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. love that sound as well. That was my nomination. And I think also there was a bunch of celery involved in that as well <laughs> because it had that really squelchy, kind of wet, crunchy sound that only celery can make. Or, or bones. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I had to give an honorary mention to the appearance of our old friend, the red-tailed hawk, oh. at the 50-minute mark, <laughs> when Boyd is in his long, dark night of the pit with Reich. And yes, there it is, just to make sure that you know it's a Western movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's it's just written into any film contract set in the mm. wilderness of America. You have to have that sound effect. Yeah. Okay, last category. We have a funniest scene. Was there anything that was intentionally or unintentionally funny in this film? Serge. So, so mine, I think, is definitely an unintentionally funny. We already mentioned it, but when the one man is the, the Native American in the outpost is, is explaining the Wendigo myth, he's he's kind enough to bring along these animal hides where he has painted pictures of the Wendigo devouring someone. <laughs> and then when Colonel Hart expresses his disbelief, he's like, do people actually still do that? He then whips out the Jesus picture as if he carries these two around with him at all times in case he has to explain the Wendigo myth to a disbelieving white guy. I love the picture of Jesus as well because it's almost like a cartoon character. Like it just doesn't it doesn't fit the gravity of, of the explanation, but oh well. No, I guess it's it's fair to say that there aren't that many Native American depictions of Christ <laughs> that they could draw from That's as true. inspiration. That's true. I mean, my funniest scene, I think it's unintentionally funny, but it's the final scene where Boyd and Colhoun are trapped in this bear trap and it's just snap clothes and Colhoun says to Boyd, that was really sneaky. <laughs> 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 and I just thought it was a yeah. very odd line to have after such a, I guess, grueling scene of them just <laughs> stabbing each other. That was really <laughs> sneaky. Yeah. Improvised, as it turns out. Oh, oh right. Wow. <laughs> yes. Although Ted Griffin says that he will always take credit for it, but he didn't write it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And for you, Conrad? For me, I was always in love with Colonel Hart's uh, dialogue, and there's just a scene where they're settling down for Knox stew, as you called it earlier, and he says, well, isn't this civilised? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was... <laughs> wonderfully droll because i think he quite possibly believes that it is um but yes clearly not <laughs> yeah i i loved it as well because both hart and colhoun are just going mm, yeah just disagreeing just, <laughs> just so matter-of-factly <laughs> <laughs> while boyd bleeds to death <laughs> <laughs> okay that's our move please yes
Okay, it's the final verdict time. Should Ravenous be liberated to gain superhuman strength by eating human flesh? Or should it be thrown off a cliff, tumbled down a hill, eaten alive, and its bones thrown into the abyss that is Oubliette to be lost forever? (laughs) Serge, you are our guest today, and you also picked this film. So uh, what's what's your verdict? So I've watched this film twice now since uh, we decided we were going to do this. After the first viewing, I would have said to put it back in the oubliette. I didn't like the tonal shift midway. I wasn't understanding the metaphors, but uh, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I watched it the second time, and I just think once once my expectations were set, I was more in jive with it. Um, And so my final verdict is that I would release it. I want other people to experience the weirdness, the brave weirdness of this film. Mm. Mm. Conrad, how about you? I had a very similar experience, actually. I'd never seen it before. I didn't know what I was, what to expect. And uh, as I said, when it started, I thought, wow, this is a really badly made movie. (laughs) (laughs) It defied all of my expectations, which kind of made me a little bit mad. And then I watched it again and realized that actually I think it's probably more clever than I initially thought it was and that it told a really interesting story and it really does put you in the shoes of the central character Boyd and take him on this incredible arc. And And I really appreciated the, the structure that Antonia Bird had managed to rescue with her, along with her cast and the writer who was there rewriting frantically <laughs> as the production was derailing. And I think the net result is something that looks beautiful. The soundtrack is fascinating. It's not always working. There are many elements that are not always working, but I was never bored. And yeah, I can't, couldn't stop thinking about it either. And um, kazoo or not, I'm still <laughs> in love with the soundtrack. So yeah, I think people should see it. I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't got more of a cachet uh, over the years. I think people should definitely see it. I would vote to let it go. What about you, Dan? Ah, well, uh, I think (laughs) I am (laughs) completely separate to you guys. Maybe uh, I have only seen it once, so maybe I have your initial sort of impressions of the film. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it works. I think it's, it's a little jumbled. Uh, The tone, I can't, I just cannot grasp the tone of this film. It just, it's off. It's one foot in either category of satire and then horror. And it just doesn't quite mesh to me it's almost like it's made up of jigsaw pieces but they're from three separate jigsaw puzzles and you're trying to put it together (laughs) and as hard as you try those remaining pieces just don't quite lock into place it could have been because antonio was brought in very late in production and she just had to just glue these pieces in and just go it's a full film here we go we've got a film but uh, when you stand back it just doesn't (laughs) i don't know i don't think it's a pretty picture for me (laughs) yeah i would actually vote to to throw it back in the oubliette That's all fair. It is, yes, perfectly fair. But we don't need a coin of fate this time no. because our guest uh, has outnumbered. been the decider here. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Ravenous is set free from the bear trap to romp among the populace and cannibalize oh. to its heart's content. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go. It's very sneaky. 
Okay, so now we do have to reveal what we're going to be doing next episode. Conrad. Yes, I thought it'd be fun if we spun the oubliette roulette. And seeing as we have a guest today, Serge, would you like to do the honours? I'd be happy to. It was so nice of you guys to ship the oubliette roulette to Chicago for me to spin. <laughs> Did it survive transit? It's pretty rickety. It's uh, yeah. It was it, it survived, but I've got these these packing peanuts all over my floor now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, give it a whirl. Okay, uh, here we go. Oh, what's it gonna be? Oh. Wow, it's Dragon Slayer. That was just only recently suggested. It was, yes. It was suggested by our new fan, Chad Rommel, on Twitter. It's a 1981 Disney fantasy adventure directed by Matthew Robbins. Can't wait to get into Dragons since uh, Game of Thrones is ending very soon. <laughs> and I haven't watched any of the latest seasons, so no spoilers, please. No spoilers. Okay. I was just about to say something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a bit of controversy about the dragons at the moment. Bold choice of them to switch to hand puppets after so many seasons of CGI. (laughs) 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 Yes, so thanks for everyone for listening and thanks to Serge for being our special guest again today. Amazing. I hope you've enjoyed your time. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's, it's been a blast as always. How can people keep up to date in what you're up to? Uh, so my handle is Cold Crash Pictures. That's where you can find me pretty much anywhere. YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I am Cold Crash Picks. Yes. Ooh. Please do subscribe to his video essays on YouTube. They are all fantastic. And there's a really interesting one coming up. I don't know if you want to talk about that. It's kind of relevant. Yeah. It's um, The next video I'm going to be doing is called Should We Still Be Watching Gone with the Wind? Mm, oh. Civil War again. Hard at work on that. Mm. So that too is kind of a Cold Crash Pictures version of of an oubliette. (laughs) Should we or should we not? (laughs) Yes. Can't wait for your final verdict. Yeah. And if you want to follow us, uh, we are Movie Oubliette everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and movie.oubliette at gmail.com. If you want to email us, we always love your feedback and questions and anything, anything at all. Indeed. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to like and review us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever your podcast platform of choice may be. It really helps us out. Yes, really does. Okay, bye for now. Bye. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't come up the movie Juliet. If you die first, I am definitely going to eat you. But the question is, if I die, what are you going to do?